Well, good evening. If you'll turn in your Bibles uh, to Nahum, and if you may want to go ahead and stick your finger just in a couple books back at the end of Jonah, as we'll be taking a look at uh, the end of Jonah chapter 3 as we, we pull these two books together this evening. The book of Nahum is not exactly uplifting if you're looking for uplifting reading. It is a book about God's judgment upon the Assyrians, specifically the city of Nineveh. But as we'll see in our study this evening, <clears throat> there is a purpose in God's judgment. God is good and he is just in his judgments. And we want to understand that in reading Nahum that there is good news. In, in spite of all of the death and destruction that takes place in the book, there is good news. Let's begin this evening as we, as we look at, at Nahum uh, and talking a little bit about who Nahum is. Um, we actually could read all of Nahum and have plenty of time to discuss the book afterwards. It is a very short writing. Uh, and most of you, if you were flipping to find it just now, probably on maybe two, three pages. Uh, if you have small print like some of, uh, some of you do, if you're still able to read those, not, not so much me anymore, but uh, it may be on even less. You may have a page and a half. Uh, but um, Nahum, we don't know a lot about Nahum uh, specifically because what's, what's given to us at the very beginning is just a name and a location. Uh, in the first verse, it says, The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So we have the name Nahum, and we have this Elkishite, which maybe gives us a location where Nahum is from. Uh, Nahum, as a name in Hebrew, means comforter or consoler. And it's hard for us to kind of reconcile that with how the book is all about judgment of Nineveh, and he's supposed to be a consoler or a comforter. But we need to look at it from God's perspective. And so he's delivering a comforting or a consoling message to the people of Judah, even in the judgment of the, the nation of Assyria and the people in Nineveh. The, there are varying ideas about where Elkosh, if he's an Elkoshite, where was that exactly? And uh, in my studying, I saw that there was plenty of uh, differing opinions, not, not anybody who was, was settled on exactly where this was, but I did find one that, that was very, uh, very common, very commonly discussed, and I, I think it's interesting for us to, to discuss it for, for just a second. So while there's no specific location given, uh, there is a city named Elkosh that was located near the Sea of Galilee in Judah. That city would later become known as the city of Capernaum. The name Capernaum literally means the village of Nahum, which I found very interesting. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily that he got a street named after him or a city named after him because he delivered this, uh, this message from God about uh, the Assyrians, but it is uh, potentially a logical location for him because he would have uh, been very likely in Judah and writing to, to the, the people of Judah about uh, the Assyrians, and it, it somewhat makes sense from a geographic location that he may have been from the city there. Uh, that's, not, that's not exactly where he says he's from. He just says he's an Elkishite, and uh, it is certainly possible, though, that he was from what would later be known as Capernaum. In writing, and historically speaking, if we're trying to figure out where do these books fit in, uh, because 
things aren't always logically, chronologically organized in, in, in God's word. Um, we want to understand when the book was written. So when, from a timing perspective in human history, is this written? Nahum is writing to the Assyrians after uh, the, the writing of Jonah. And so if we're going to put the two together, it's very helpful for us to understand Jonah and the writing of Jonah, uh, and we'll read in just a little bit uh, the, the ending of, uh, of Jonah's writing, as we now begin to think about what Nahum is saying. And what Nahum is saying, if we don't have the reference of Jonah, it's hard for us to understand the patience of God and, and, God's, and God's goodness in the judgment if we just start out with, uh, with Nahum not understanding uh, Jonah. So the writing has been set somewhere between 663 and 612 B.C. A lot of scholars believe 650, 655 is, is when the book was written. There are two primary reasons for, for them to believe this. In the book of Nahum itself, uh, we see the city Thebes uh, mentioned as a past tense having fallen. So Thebes has fallen. So we know historically that that took place around 663 and the fall of Nineveh takes place in 612. So as this is being foretold about the fall, we would say that it was definitely written before 612, and it was written after Thebes had fallen, which happened in 663. The whole purpose uh, of Nahum's writing is to write uh, of God's impending judgment. This is not necessarily the same type of writing that we saw from Jonah. Jonah, as, as we'll read in a minute, is, is, is calling for the people of Nineveh to repent, right? Repent of your idol worship. Repent of all of your sin and turn to God, and God will relent of the destruction of the city. As Nahum writes some 100, 150 years later, uh, it's more of a pronouncement of impending judgment, God is about to do these things. And there's, there's not a sense in his writing that this is repent because God is going to destroy the city in 40 days like we see in Jonah. This is God is going to destroy the city. And there are several places in uh, scripture where it seems like this is a foregone conclusion. God has been kind to the nation. God has been merciful to the nation. God has been patient. But at this point, it is time for his judgment to be rendered unto the people. And so let's read just for, uh, just for historical purposes and so that we understand. Let's, let's turn to Jonah and, uh, and read in Jonah chapter 3 where the word has come to Jonah the second time and he is going to deliver it to the people of Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk, giving us an idea here for how big the city of Nineveh was, a three-day walk across the city. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. And then the people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatness, greatest of them to the least. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king 
and his nobles that no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. And so God relented from the disaster that he had threatened with them with, and he did not do it. This is the generation of Ninevites that heard from the Lord through Jonah. They repented. They responded immediately, and they turned to the Lord. But as we read in Scripture, so many times in Judges, there arose a generation who did not know Jonah, and they did not know the Lord of Jonah. And they would do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they would return to their sinful ways. They would return to their false gods. They would return to their murder and their abuse of peoples that they were conquering. We don't see that in Judges, right? Because we don't see that written directly about the Ninevites, the Assyrians, but that's written about God's people, and we certainly believe that that applies directly in this situation. Just a generation or so later, these people have completely turned. They have forgotten the message that God had given them about the judgment. The Assyrians, it's important to note that, that as that, that empire grew, they were a brutal, brutal people. It's important for us to understand that because we need to understand what they were doing and what they had repented from and what they were returning to. As they would go about conquering and expanding their empire, as they would plunder and kill and take over neighboring nations, they would often take the skins of people who were killed and stretch them out on the inside of their tents. They would kill the women and children, young children, in the streets and leave them as they would carry off the nobles and the gold. They were a brutal people and it was reflected in their lifestyle. It is these people that had repented and turned to God, but it is these people that had turned back unto their sinful ways. So as we get to Nahum and we get to the writing of Nahum, Nahum is now writing to a people who were full on back into their sinful ways that they had repented from. And having heard the truth, they had returned to darkness. And as Nahum writes to them, this is the end. And so if we were to provide an outline for, for, for the book of Nahum, these three short chapters, chapter one, we would see that God is just and good in judgment. Chapter two shows us that God's judgment is executed. And chapter three, that God's judgment is fully justified. So now let's turn our attention to the, to the text of Nahum uh, we're not going to read all of it, even though I said we had time. Uh, we're going to read some selected uh, verses from it this evening. The Lord is jealous. This is from chap chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord will judge sin. And he starts out his message, Nahum starts out his message about God's vengeance, God's wrath. 
God's anger with his enemies. But I want you to notice as, as we see that, that, that in verse 3 it says, the Lord is slow to anger. It's interesting as we read that, if we don't understand that God has already talked to these people 100, 150 years beforehand, how does it fit that God is slow to anger? Well, I would say that 100, 150 years is a tremendous example of God's slowness to anger. This, this vengeance, this, this uh, judgment that God is going to pour out upon this people is not one that is a snap decision. God has has talked to them before. He has delivered his message through his prophet previously, and he has been slow in delivering his anger. But the Lord is great in power, and the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. This message is a dual message, I believe. It is a message not only for the Ninevites that God is going to completely destroy them, and pass judgment upon them, but it is a message also to those in Judah, that they can see that the harshness and the, the terrible treatment that they have experienced under uh, the Assyrians, the, the, the reason for Jonah not wanting to go to Nineveh in the first place, God is not going to allow that to go unpunished because God is just and he is holy. And as he pours out his wrath and judgment, even in doing so, we are to understand that he is good. And not just good because he is just and he is punishing those who deserve punishment, but he is good in saving those who are his. Verses 8 and 9, or actually I'm going to go down to, to verse 7. It's it, 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 talking about the destruction and then further it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress, and he cares for those who take ref, refuge in him. Again, I believe that is for those who are believing in the Lord, those who are faithful to him, those who are being oppressed by Assyria, being oppressed by the Ninevites. But, verse 8, but he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. We see in the judgment both of those, the Lord's goodness and the goodness to his people, but also his justice in dealing with those who are sinful, those who have been oppressing his people. God speaks directly to Judah in verses 12 and 13, and he says, This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down, and, and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer for I will now break off this yoke from you and tear off your, sh your shackles. We see multiple times in Scripture that as the Israelites were unfaithful to the Lord, that the Lord would bring uh, an opposing force, that he would bring another nation in that would, that would oppress them and, and subdue them for a period of time. And in doing so, the Lord was bringing judgment upon his own people for their sinfulness. And now in passing judgment, and breaking the yoke that, that was on them by this opposing nation, the Lord is showing his kindness and his goodness and the delivery on his promises to his people, that he would preserve them, that he would help them, that he would be a refuge for them. Even in spite of all of the things that they had, they had endured at the hands of the Assyrians, God is being faithful in restoring them. Now, as we know in reading in Scripture and we know from, from history that the Israelites 
continued in that cycle of sinfulness. They would learn when they were being oppressed and they would return to God, but in a short period of time, they would go right back into sinfulness again themselves. But in that, in and through all of that, God is working, God is preserving, God is protecting, God is providing for his people. He is a refuge for those who love him. As we move into chapter two, we see God's judgment executed on Nineveh. This, ta- this chapter is, is, is hard as we think about what it would look like for a city to be completely sacked and destroyed. As we read a little bit there at the end of Jonah, if you read all the way to the end of Jonah, God actually gives a number of people who are in uh, the city. The number that he gives uh, out of chapter 4 is 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and left as well as many animals is, is, is what the scripture says at the end of end of uh, Jonah. But the city is attacked. The judgment of the Lord is executed. And we get a description of this coming judgment. One of the amazing things I think about reading things like this is God is giving so much detail through Nahum. He is telling them even the color of the shields that the warriors are going to carry. 50 or so years in the future, he's telling them This is how it's going to happen. This is what they're going to have. This is the color of their shields. This is the color of the chariots. This is what they're going to be dressed in as they come. It speaks to the omniscience of God, and it speaks to God's God's power in in working through things that were occurring. This, This opposing nation is going to be Babylon. We know historically Babylon and the Medes are going to be the ones that come and destroy Assyria. And God is providing that description in in chapter 2. Let me read just a couple selections here. In in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas, and they look like torches, and they dart back and forth like lightning. Skip down to 7. Beauty is stripped away. She is carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting mourn like the sound of, moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Verse 10, desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. There's lots of other things that, that are described here as far as what happens to the city that, that you can read if you want to read about the downfall of the city and the, and the things that occur. But essentially, the walls of the city are breached. The, the city of Nineveh was surrounded by walls. This giant city with, as we're told at the, at the time of Jonah, 120,000 people, they had a giant wall around the city, supposedly wide enough to pass three chariots on, 100 feet high. But nothing that man can do can prevent God from fulfilling his purpose. No amount of chariots and horses and spears and swords and things like that can prevent God from passing out his judgment. And in his judgment, this city that thought that it ruled the world, the city that honestly at that time it was the power and seemed like it was completely in charge of the known world, was completely destroyed. Verse 13 explains that to us. It says, Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, 
and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. God's pronouncement is final. As this occurs, the city of Nineveh would not only be completely destroyed at this time, but essentially wiped off the map for good. God's judgment is permanent against Nineveh. Chapter 3, as we, as we look, chapter 3 is the judgment that is justified. Now, God has pronounced all of these things that are going to occur, and he's going to give us reasons and descriptions of, of why God is, God is doing these things. We obviously know from Jonah about the Ninevites and about the evilness and sinfulness of them, but he's going to touch on it again in chapter 3. And we're going to start by reading just the first, first few verse, verses of chapter 3. It says, Woe to the city of blood! Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of wheel, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging horsemen, flashing swords, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the dead because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because of the treatment of not just Israel, but because of their treatment of other nations, their sinfulness, their sorceries, their murder, the plundering, how they had taken people into slavery and sold people in slavery, they were being judged by God. And he asks them later on, do you think that you're any better than these other cities that I have pass judgment upon? Do you think that you were going to get away with it? Do you think that you were going to get away from my judgment? I had sent you a message previously and you had repented. Did you think that you were going to return to your sinful ways and not receive judgment? Later here in, in, in chapter three, we have some concluding verses that specifically to the king of Assyria, uh, at the end of, of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it's, it says, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains, with no one to gather them <clears throat> together. There is no remedy for the injury, your wound is severe, and all who hear the news about you clap their hands because of you, for who has not experienced your constant cruelty. In reading this, when you think about this, think about what happens now in basketball games, right? If you're in a basketball game today, okay, just I'm talking about this reaction of clapping of hands with bad news. If you're in a basketball game today and you do something and somebody gets called for a foul, players today will, they'll clap in your face, right? It's a taunt. And usually, hopefully, the referees will see it and they'll throw a technical foul on them, right? But the clapping of the face in bad news seems to be bad form. But in, in Scripture, as we read this, we can imagine this great, terrible nation that has been destroyed, that as people hear that message, they would actually be glad, that they would cheer, that they would clap their hands and applaud the fact that the city had been destroyed, that the city had been judged by God. 
Now, it's important for us to understand what all happens, and we, we didn't read all of the, the terrible atrocities that were happening as the city was being destroyed, but God's judgment is harsh on this city. And we need to understand that for our context today and in the context of what it means for, for God to judge sinners, that it's not going to be a pretty thing. It is going to be a terrible thing. It is something that should, should cause fear, something that should, should not, not be something that anyone wants to see. And to think about a city as large as that was being destroyed, how terrible their treatment of others must have been for people to have applauded the death of women and children. So as we read this book, what is the good news, right? We've talked about a lot of bad stuff up to this point. God has pronounced judgment. God has, has foretold all that was going to happen. God has, has shown us that he was just in destroying them. Where is the good news in Nahum? Where, where can we find the good news? Well, the good news has been mentioned a couple of times as we've went along. The, the good news is for those who are faithful to the Lord. The good news is for Judah, the good news is that God is just and that he is a stronghold for those who take refuge in him and, who, and he cares for us in our day of distress. As we read in our call to worship from Romans 10, there's, there's a phrase that's used in that about uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And that actually comes from, from Nahum. Uh, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. And Paul is giving this not as an imagery for us to celebrate the fall of a city. He is to, to think about how wonderful the news would have been for the, the people in Judah to hear that Nineveh had been conquered, that the yoke had been broken, that their oppressors had been, uh, had been judged by God. He wants us to think about how beautiful that, that news would have been, about how people would have clapped their hands and been excited. The imagery that Paul is, is wanting us to think of is, is, is receiving good news. And as we think about this in the context of what, what Paul is, is writing in Romans, he's talking about receiving the good news of the gospel. He's wanting us to think about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ had done for us on the cross, that he had, he had judged sin, that he had conquered, that he had overcome, that he had removed the yoke and taken the shackles off of his people by dying in their place on the cross. And as Paul writes, he talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And when we think about the bringing of good news, we want to think about not only those who are ministers, missionaries, we want to think about those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We want to think about going forth as we're commanded to in the Great Commission to bring the good news to a lost and dying world. As friends, as terrible as it is for us to think about Nineveh being judged and destroyed as much as they deserved it, as much as Jonah sat and was like, man, God, I knew you were going to forgive them. You know, I knew that you were going to relent. You were going to have me preach the good news and they were going to be repenting. You know, Jonah was completely wrong 
in, in his, his response to that. He wanted to see them judged. Friends, are, we, we live in a world full of people who are sinful, just like the people in Nineveh. Maybe not exactly doing the same things, but a world that is sinful in the eyes of God. A, a world that is, is going to be judged. And if we believe what God has said in Scripture, what he, we've been studying on Sunday morning in Revelation, that God is going to judge sinners, we have to believe that God is going to do that. And if we believe that God is going to judge sinners and he is going to send those who are not in Christ to an eternity in hell, we should be driven to share the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. Our world, in many ways, is like the city of Nineveh. They have received the message. We have received the gospel. And at times, we have had periods where people and nations, specifically, will be very much turning toward God. But our nation is not turned towards God. I would say our world is not turned towards God. Our nation is far from God. And the message in Nahum, the message of your time is up, judgment is coming, I believe is the message for our world today. We have received the good news. We have heard the good news. What we are waiting for at this point is for God to judge the world. And the return of Christ is definitely good news for us, but it is not good news for a world that is sinful, a world that is against God. And it should not be our desire, to, like Jonah, to sit and, and wait for the destruction of the world. We should be concerned about the world. We should be concerned about the lost. We should be concerned about whether or not we have done all that we could to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. Because as bad as the world is, this judgment is terrible. And we know that when God judges the world, that it is final, it will come swiftly, the same way that Nahum is describing for the Ninevites, and it will be complete. And for all of those who have plotted and schemed and, and rejected Christ, they will receive judgment. The comfort for those who believe in Christ is that we will be saved. He is a stronghold for us. He is a protector for us. And church, as, as God holds on to us and and he tarries and he is, he's being slow in his anger, I want us to, to be concerned about our lost brothers and sisters. We thank God for his slowness to judge and his slowness to bring things to a close, but he will not tarry forever, just as he did not tarry for those in Nahum's day. So, good news for the believer is that our Lord will protect us. Our Lord will save many. And the good news for us as we share the gospel is that God has many who he is going to save. And for all of us, our responsibility is to live out that great commission because we don't know who the Lord is going to save. We are to be faithful in sharing 
with others until Christ returns. And I will not, I would say we would not be among those who would be clapping on that day. It will be a sad day for those who do not know the Lord. But we praise the Lord for his tearing, we praise him for his protection, and we praise him for the fact that even today he is still saving people from sin. Please join me as we, we, we pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the book of Nahum. Lord, it's, uh, it, it's difficult for us to see your judgment poured out. But Lord, we know that you are holy. We know that you are just. We know that your, your judgments are, are pure, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to seek to follow you. We pray that we would seek to, to make you known among the nations. Lord God, we pray that you would help us Lord, as we do that, to be bold, because we know, Lord, that you will judge and that there will be a day when you will call an end to all things and that we will stand before you in judgment. We pray, Lord God, that you would save many, that you would help us, Lord, as we, as we, as we minister, as we, as we talk to our friends, as we, we preach and teach here in this place, Lord, we pray that many would be saved, that they would hear the gospel and repent, Lord. And on that day when you return, Lord, that, that, that we would be gathered together with many that have, that have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, and we thank you for allowing us to participate in that with you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we go our separate ways. We thank you and we pray.